Christ more. We would love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, cool. I am going to share my screen real quick, and we're just going to jump into this. Um, yeah. So a little bit of review, and I know some people might be here that weren't here last time or whatever, but it's all good. Um, so I'm just going to kind of connect a little bit of what we talked about last week to this week. And um, yeah, this should be kind of fun. So William was saying, you know, a lot of people had some things to talk about from last time. You'll definitely have some stuff to talk about from this one. Ever. We'll just do it. So last week I, I talked a little about Genesis 3.15 and just made the connection of the blood covenant and how the, the, the story, the battle of the seed, I called it the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. Actually, you can trace it all throughout the Bible and that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel because you can trace it all the way back from the genealogy in Matthew. At the beginning, it says he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And it actually goes all the way back to the garden, to this promise in Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve uh, fall and God says to the serpent, actually, he says, um, but he's also speaking to Adam and Eve. He says that the, that the, you know, that the seed or Eve's offspring is another way of saying it will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would, would bruise his heel and that there would be enmity between the two. And so at that moment, there was like this, there already was a war, but like it, because of that promise, that covenant God made, there was an expectation that not only would Adam and Eve not, uh, even though they had died spiritually and eventually would die physically, that there was a promise that there was one to come and he's going to restore Eden and restore what was lost. And so when you follow in Genesis, even up to Genesis chapter five, you see this real in, you know, intent focus on the genealogies, which you know usually we just skip over, but um, the focus is there because what they're doing is they're tracing that bloodline, searching for that one. So when you get to Noah, Noah is a firstborn direct descendant of, of um, his father's father's father going all the way back to Seth. Okay. So Seth is the one because Cain and Abel, it all went South. Right. And so Seth is the one that carries on the promise and, um, and actually his name means appointed one. Um, so I don't know what, what Adam and Eve were thinking at that point in time, but they had an expectation that at some point, whether they would see it in their lifetime, who knows what they believed that there would be a son that would actually conquer the serpent. Okay. So that was the idea that we talked about last week. And so we're going to focus a little bit more on, on, uh, let's see, let me get here. We're going to focus a little bit more on it this week. And um, yeah, and so I also talked about, and I, I quoted from Revelation chapter 12 and just talked about how there's this battle that broke out in heaven, if you will, and broke out on the earth because at that moment, the woman became the enemy number one for the serpent because he knew that from her womb would come the, the one that was going to actually defeat him. And so um, this war breaks out and Revelation 12 
I don't know what, I just grabbed this picture, but it was kind of cool. So Revelation 12 talks about the serpent really being a dragon and how war breaks out in heaven and how he comes down and he's furious and he's angry and he goes after the woman and she's about to give birth. She gives birth, but before he can kill her or the child, God basically protects, protects her and he's furious and he's angry and he knows his time is short. So he goes off to make war with uh, with the woman's basically with the uh, Israel, with God, with God's people and with those who confess Jesus. And uh, so, so he's going after the people of God. And so that's in the context of, of revelation, but that battle is going on all throughout starting in Genesis three fifteen and uh, all the way through. So we don't know all of the details, but at different times we can see how the enemy gets in there and really tries to, to literally destroy the nation of Israel. Even like in the book of Esther, when you see that um, Xerxes or whichever King, you know, there's the, the, uh, the edict to actually, they would, it would have been genocide. It would have annihilated Israel. Or you can even see looking all the way back to just world war II, even though that's not recorded in the Bible, we know that there was an attempted genocide on the Jewish people. And if you look through the history books, you'll see that um, it's unbelievable how many countries, uh, um, let's see, I, I know I looked it up a while ago and it, it was just a listing of dates and countries where the Jews were kicked out of different countries. You know, So like when Shakespeare wrote, uh, when he wrote his plays and sometimes he would reference Jews, there were no Jews in, in the Uni United Kingdom, you know, in England, because at that time they had been expelled. So at different times, countries would have pogroms against them and, and literally expel them. They were expelled out of Spain multiple times. Many countries would expel them because of just this deep-seated hatred. Um, and it's not a fluke. I'm, you know, I, I'm just saying I don't, I don't believe it's a fluke that there just happens to be this deep-seated hatred towards Israel because they're the people of God um, that were prophesied about in Genesis 3:15. And then specifically Jesus being the seed. Um, so that's kind of where we left off. So I'm going to pull it back up to Genesis 6, because like I said, we're going to go back to understand where we are and where we're going. We have to look back. So, so you know, and, and something we're going to see, too, is there's really nothing new under the sun. And I, I know we talked about last time, too, just how history seems to repeat. But if it doesn't repeat then it, it oftentimes rhymes, like, uh, like Mark Twain said. So we need to look back to really understand where we're going. And really, this also helps to unpack the Old Testament. So when you see that, that battle, that focus, that attention on who is the descendant, who's the descendant of Abraham? It's Isaac. Who's the descendant of Isaac? It's Jacob. And you just see this ongoing focus. It makes more sense when you're reading through uh, the Old Testament, you're reading through the book of Kings, the book of Samuel, Chronicles, any one of those books that you know might seem daunting. If you come with that perspective of, oh, we're looking for that bloodline that's passing on because David's sons, each one of them was a direct descendant, a direct son like God promised. So if you didn't hear it, you got to go back and listen. Um, so we're going to pick up in in Genesis six. And now this is a, this is like a strange passage. It's really easy to skip over these first four verses. So, um, and like I said, last time, uh, also if, if there are things that you don't agree with that, I'm saying that's fine. I'm not saying this is what you have to agree with. 
uh, these are things that you really should go back and consider whether you believe it or not. Okay. So it's not like, you know, this, I'm not expecting you to just swallow everything that I say. Okay. So, and for the most part, I'll try to share what's conjecture, what's not. Um, So when we read these first four verses, there's a lot of details that we don't know, but I can tell you that if we look back at the ancient worldview, which I don't have time to fully unpack and I don't even fully get it. I know that from the perspective of Moses, who was authoring this, but this particular, this particular story um, or the early stories of Genesis were passed on to Moses orally. Okay. So these existed. He didn't just write them, but he did write Genesis through Uh, the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis through Deuteronomy and um, his worldview was very different than ours. And Jesus's worldview when he was alive and the apostles, they had a very different worldview. So when we read Genesis one through four, and you might read in your commentary, if your Bible has a little commentary, it might just say like, it tries to give the most rational explanation based on, you know, kind of a enlightenment mentality, kind of a mentality that says, unless you can see it, it's not real. Um, so I'm just going to read it. So when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, some of your Bibles might say the giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of man, uh, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so we're going to look at these four verses because I, I think it's very important to see what, and it really increases the sense of meaning when we're looking at this bloodline, this battle of the bloodline and, and what's really happening. Um, and there's a reason why this is there. It's not for Westerners in the 21st century to skip over and just rationalize away, even though we might not fully understand it, there's much better explanations, even though they might seem a little bit crazier, but Hey, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but our world has gotten pretty crazy. So why not just let's, let's listen to the crazy old Bible and, uh, it might be relevant. So here we go. Um, I'm just going to look at first at this phrase, kind of break it down. And first is the, the phrase sons of God is used twice. It says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So the question is, who are the sons of God? Now we know the sons of God see that they're attractive. Then they take them as take, take wives for themselves and then they produce offspring, which are called Nephilim. And uh, the translation is often giants is what it is. Now, whether that's actually physically giants, I, you know, people can debate that one, but it's, it's translated giants. So Nephilim is a Hebrew word. Okay. So we've got to consider, and I'm not going to go through, I'm just taking the perspective that the sons of God are supernatural beings that they are because this is the worldview that of jesus's day everyone had the second temple period those 400 years leading up to jesus's day that's how they perceived it in moses's day this is how they would have understood it um 
So I'm just taking the perspective because like I said, you could maybe open one of your latest, you know, Bibles with a commentary and it's going to say, well, the sons of God are actually, um, the sons of Cain and they just weren't supposed to marry. It's like, it's, it's an argument that if I'm not going to spend time on it, but I'm going to say that there is another argument. So I'm not saying um, that there aren't other arguments, but what I am saying is definitely backed by scholarly perspective. So this isn't just some weird, you know, idea that I got or that a few, you know, weird people out there on the internet have. This is, there is like tons of scholarly research on these ideas. Okay. So it definitely is within the realm of orthodoxy. So if you hear this and you're like, what? Okay. Supernatural beings, the sons of God, in a sense, they're kind of like angels, I'm not going to go in depth. That's angel is a very um, kind of uh, it's kind of a broad term, so it, it's not that helpful. Um, and and I don't have time to go in depth on it. But the sons of God, anytime when you read in the Old Testament and the sons of God are mentioned, like you can find them in, in the Psalms, Psalm 89, Psalm 82. You can find them in the Book of Job. When they are in the Old Testament, sons of God refers to supernatural beings or what we might call angels. Um, but they, they seem to be high up on the, on the scale. Cause there's definitely a hierarchy and it's always talking about supernatural beings. It's not talking about men and women. Okay. In the new Testament, when we see the sons of God used, it's speaking of people of human beings are sons of God. We're adopted in as sons, right? That's the, that's the gospel is that we're adopted through the blood of Christ into the kingdom of God as sons of God. And hey, if you're a girl, that's no offense because it's a positional thing. Guys get to be the bride of Christ and, you know, girls are sons of God because it's actually, it's, it's not a necessarily a gender thing as much as it is a, a position that God has designated. So we are sons of God, but I'm trying to make that clarification that in the, in the new Testament, sons of God are people in the old Testament anywhere else. So if you read this argument that the sons of God are just the sons of Cain, and there's not really anywhere it says they can't marry. And it kind of seems strange to make an argument that it's strange that they got married and took wives and procre procreated, which is kind of what humans do. Um, I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's in multiple scriptures. Okay. So um, like I said, go look at just the opening chapter of Job. And that also shows you that that's the worldview of the Bible. Okay, the, the worldview of, of the time. So we've got sons of God. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the metaphysics of it, but I just talked about how they are in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, in Daniel chapter four, Daniel references sons of God. He calls them watchers. Okay, so you might hear that term watchers or you've heard the term watchers. Um, so and it's referring to the same kinds of beings the sons of God, but they're called watchers. And, um, and then the book of Enoch, which is not in the Bible, it's not in the Bible, but it was, it's there, there, there's actually three books of Enoch, but it's the first book of Enoch that has the most weight in terms of scholarly, the second and the third, it's kind of like, I oh, don't, we don't know, you know, it's kind of written later, but in the days of Jesus, in the days of the apostles, they were very familiar with the book of Enoch. Um, I don't believe that they considered it scripture. I, I mean, I haven't seen any evidence. I think the the Ethiopian church considers it to be part of their scripture, part of their Bible. Um, 
it's it's I think it's not considered to be scripture. It's called pseudepigraphia, something like that, um, because basically it carries prophecy that had been orally passed on, but it was still written later. So there are probably some things. So it couldn't be considered fully divinely inspired, but it it carried much in the same way, like history and prophetic realities that go way back. Okay, so the Book of Enoch um, is about Enoch who lived before Noah, before the flood, and it's written by him, as in it's coming from him. It's a prophecy. It's prophetic. And so you know, in the days of Jesus, they believed that a lot of that survived orally down to them and so in that book it elaborates um you know uh, and, and i want to say again like you know you might be going oh my gosh you know this is this is not scripture but we use you know even today scholars use other sources outside of the bible to understand what the bible is saying so um when we look at this i do want to mention that that at least 60 times the book of Enoch is referenced in the New Testament. Um, Jesus even alludes to the book of Enoch. So like I said, they probably had most of it memorized, including the Psalms and many other things. So they were deeply familiar. Jude quotes it. I mean, a good portion of that whole big old chapter is from Enoch. And Peter quotes it in Second, in second Peter uh, chapter 2. So th this is something that they considered to be very valuable information. Okay, so I just want to give the you know, the, the, the ethos behind it. So in the book of Enoch, basically we do know based on the book that the, the sons of God that Genesis six is talking about came down at some point in time. And I can't remember when exactly, you know, I don't know if we know exactly when, but, um, they, this was definitely before the flood. They came down to Mount Hermon. Now Mount Hermon is a, is a very tall mountain just north of Israel, kind of in the north side of Israel, okay? And it, and historically, even long after this, it was always considered to be a mountain of the gods. Now, mountains were always kind of considered in, mythologically to be a place where gods dwell, but Mount Hermon always had a very special significance in many mythologies, okay? So, uh, and, and my view is there's a reason for that. There's a reason why mythologies played out the way that they did because it's connected to something that's real okay so we know from the book of enoch that they came down just like genesis says and then they th there were 200 of them uh, according to the book of enoch and they made a pact and they were going to take wives for themselves and procreate and nobody could back out and because of that god was furious because they transgressed the boundaries and jude talks about this in the book of jude that they transgressed they they left their position they transgressed the boundaries and actually stepped over into a realm that they weren't supposed to because they took human wives and they procreated with them and they produced the nephilim these basically demigods um they're basically uh uh like well yeah i mean it's like what you would say is a demigod kind of like hercules or you know these other like in mythology where like there were gods that supposedly were the gods and then they would you know see beautiful women and they would take a wife for themselves and then the and then they they would produce this offspring who would be like part human and part god right which are like demigods so this is a very similar idea and 
what I'm saying is that those ideas of demigods and what um, what you'll see is also the Babylonians called the Apkalu um, is the same same idea. That's where this comes from, because there really was something that happened. I'm not saying that Zeus was real and Poseidon was real. What I'm saying is that they're really, according to the Bible and according to, to everything we know up until the Enlightenment, which I'm glad for the Enlightenment, but there are some things we lost, friends, <laughs> you know, and, and we got to a little too rational and threw things out, which is actually putting us in danger for things that are right around the corner. Okay. That's another story we'll get to in a minute. So we see here that um, uh, let me back up and just say one more thing before I move on, because I'm uh, is is that they also gave forbidden knowledge to the the to, to humanity. OK, and there are many, many different things that uh, the book of Enoch talks about, like and I just listed a few of them, but they taught the art of seduction to women like how to seduce men. So really, it wasn't just that they introduced levels of sexual immorality into human into the human race that even though there was sin before, according to even many Jewish rabbis and and for most most of history, like within Judaism, if you ask them why there's sin in the world, they did they didn't just think it was just because of the fall of Adam and Eve, but they believed that it also had very much to do with what happened in Genesis six. Okay. So so they taught astrology. So a lot of the um, occult and things that we know of today, according to the book of Enoch, comes from these fallen beings. And, and you know, um, e even today, there are people that, that don't believe in the Bible at all, but they believe in theories about like, and I, one time I believe this, you know, long before I was a Christian, was like that aliens came and taught us things, right? Because we're like, how do we get this knowledge? Or how do we learn how to build these crazy things so long ago, right? And so some people actually say, well, it's because aliens came down and taught us these things. Well, I mean, you know, in a way, it's not really aliens like extraterrestrials, but there was an outside source of knowledge and it is the sons of God. It's these these fallen, broken, not I mean, there were many sons of God that didn't rebel, but these did. And they're and they're not necessarily in the, I don't know what their connection is with the serpent in the garden. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us if they're colluding with him, if they kind of did their own thing. Um, but they also taught arts of war and many other things. OK, so like roots, herbs, pharmaceutical kind of things like it's really interesting. So also, I'm going to point out, too, that this is now I don't fully know, but I know Michael Heiser, somebody I, I listen to. He's a great resource on this stuff. Very well read, um, incredible scholar, really good at taking this, like all this kind of research and putting it out there. And he says that that's why in Galatians or Romans five and in Galatians three nineteen, the reason why, like here, Paul says, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come um, it to, you know, to whom the promise had been made. And um, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So basically what he's saying is that the reason why the law was added that Paul's arguing is because of not just transgressions of people, but because of the transgressions of the sons of God, because it released a pollution in the earth and it released, released a corruption in the earth. Now, I do believe that. I don't know if that's what Paul was saying. Okay. I just don't know. I've, 
I've thought about it. I'm like, it's very possible. And I definitely believe that there were there were transgressions that that released a, a flood of corruption and evil into the world that sort of accelerated us in our corruption as human beings. Um, but it's interesting to consider that that might be because, you know, well, I don't want to go into it, but if you look in numbers and you kind of see it's like, hey, you know, God's got to he's got to tell them like, hey, we're not killing babies. Like we're not going to take babies and sacrifice babies because, you know, they would take babies and like stick them in these burning furnaces at, so that it would create this crazy noise. And it was the sound that would, you know, please the gods. And hey, you know, we're not going to we're not going to do polygamy and we're not going to, you know, sacrifice people. And I mean, it was like it's it's kind of stuff that you're thinking. I've heard people say, you know, there's always been a sense of morality. No, actually, most of our morality is very, very much because of Judeo-Christian roots that we've inherited. But you go back in history and, and man, things got really warped and God had to actually teach the Israelites through the law, like, hey, you know, this thing that we would consider to be common sense, apparently they didn't because the world around them was living in such um, depravity, okay? So that, you know, that's historically true. Uh, for, for sure. So anyway, I'm going to move on. So when man, I'm going to go back and look at this a little bit closer. So when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, it says, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any of the, as they chose. Now this is, you have to realize that in the, especially the old Testament, not one word is used by mistake it's all all the words are used brilliant i mean this is a brilliant piece of literature it's god's word i totally believe and it's also a brilliant piece of literature so every word has very specific meaning okay there's not and even even where things are placed in the scripture that's kind of beyond the scope but even where things are placed like where where the paragraph is and all of those things is very specific and purposeful. So this particular phraseology has already been used one other time in the scriptures so far, and that's back in Genesis 3. And it's the same Hebrew words that are being used. And it's um, if you look in Genesis 3, you'll see it's very interesting. Basically, what we're seeing is that Genesis 6 is like another temptation. So there was a temptation in Genesis 3 for humanity in Genesis 6, in a way, it's a temptation for these sons of God, these spiritual beings. Okay. So let me see if I can get it to, to go. There we go. So look in verse 6, you say, so when the woman saw, this is Genesis 3, this is Eve, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. Okay. So that word good is tov. And it's the same word um, that's being used in Genesis 6. So all three of these words you see in Hebrew, not in English, in Hebrew, they're the same exact words. The idea is they saw, saw that it was good. It was like it, it, there was so, sort of this beauty and this temptation that allured them to take, okay? In one instance, it's take and consume the fruit. In the other instance, it's take and consume these women and it was it was a transgression that was beyond the boundary so we weren't there when god spoke to sons of god and you might say hey look you know there's no way that these spiritual beings could procreate 
Well, how do we know that? I mean, they're, they're actually more real than we are. When Jesus was resurrected, he walked through walls and yet he was completely physical. He's not a ghost. He's actually more physically real than we are. It's just, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe there's like more dimensions or whatever. We, we just know that we're the ones that are not so real. We're the ones who are mortal. We're the ones who are like grass that are going to fade away. Okay. Jesus did address one time. This is the one that people would throw out there. No, they can't procreate because when the, when the Jews were trying to trick Jesus, they asked him about this brother who was married one time. And I can't remember what the scripture was, but the brother who was married and, and he died. And so he had all these brothers, right? And so the wife was then given to the next brother and then he died. And then the wife was given to the next brother and then he died. And so it goes so forth. So in the, in the, you know, in the next age, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Like in the coming age, there's not going to be, you're not going to be giving in marriage. You're going to be like the angels in heaven. That's what he says. So people use that and say, well, that means that there's no way they could procreate. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that we would be like them in that, but it doesn't mean that they can't procreate. Okay. It doesn't mean we know that even the angel of the Lord would manifest looking just like a human being in the old Testament, come to Abraham, came to Lot came to many people and it was the angel of the Lord, but looked just like a guy, Jacob, you know, wrestled with a man turned out to be the angel of the Lord. So, and we know from Corinthians that, that even the enemy can masquerade as an angel of light. So it, it's, it's very possible. Okay. And based on this here, we definitely see that there's some real purposefulness in this. Okay. Um, there's a reason why that connection is made. Okay. So here's Jude. He's one of the apostles. Actually, this is Jesus's brother, um, Jude. It's only one chapter. And he says, and this is actually directly out of the book of Enoch and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay. So um, he, it, it's interesting here. Also in Peter in second Peter, Peter says the same thing. He says that those angels were put in your Bible might say hell, but the Greek word is Tartarus. And I don't know why some of these translators, maybe they're afraid of, of it. But so in Greek mythology, Tartarus is where the Titans, when they rebelled, they were put in Tartarus. It's like the deepest depth of the earth. In the book of Enoch, when they find out, because Enoch was sent to them, in the heavenlies to, to actually tell these angels their judgment. And it was so terrible that they, first of all, they're told that all their offspring are going to be killed and they're going to see it, which turns out to be the flood. Um, and then they're going to be put in Tartarus. They're going to put in the deepest. And it was so terrifying that even the angels who didn't rebel were, were freaked out. Like, I mean, it, for whatever reason, like it, it was something that made them tremble. Okay. Like, Yahweh was mad that they did what they did. Okay. Yahweh's God's name. So in second Peter, he, he uses the word Tartarus and I'm just making that connection because like I said, again, Greek mythology, um, you know, there, there are those that don't argue that Judaism, maybe that it kind of like played off of mythology and, and, you know, that really it's just, you know, one time they were polytheistic too. It's, it's not at all. Like if we go back to Genesis six, what we see during that time period 
is they were interacting with the world of their day. At that time, the Sumerians and the what, what was the early Babylonians believed in the Apkalu. And they also had a lineage of kings that went back before the flood because every culture at that time believed in the flood. Okay. Maybe not the way that we would explain it with Noah. So if you read, uh, if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh the, in, in Sumerian writings, you know, he meets Utnapishtim, who is who had been on the boat through the flood, right? Um, so they they believed that before then they had these kings who were who had lived these really long lives. Kind of interesting, right? Hmm, where does that you know? So these other cultures who didn't believe in the Bible believed that there were these patriarchs before, and not all of them are good, you see. So on, on the Babylonian side, they're seeing things. And their kings were not good. They're probably connected to the sons of God, like we're talking about. And they lived these long lives. And then they had these things called the Apkalu, which are basically demigods. And so the Bible's interacting with them going, yo, I want you guys to know those Apkalu that you think are gods, those beings that you think are gods, they are evil. They're not good. This is not good because from the Babylonian perspective, this was good. I mean, you know, the gods brought knowledge to us. They taught us these things. And it wasn't just them. It was many cultures of the day. So the Genesis is not like just co-opting uh, co-opting mythology. Genesis is actually doing polemics, which is actually aggressively arguing against something while at the same time acknowledging it, going, look, the reason why this is going down, the reason why some of your priests have had visions of these gods is because they are real in a sense, but um, let me tell you, it's evil. It's evil. This, this really went down this way, okay? So, <laughs> um, again, that might, this might be a lot for you to chew on, you know, and to listen to, but, you know, even C.S. Lewis was an atheist. If you ever heard of him, you know, he was an atheist, brilliant, brilliant man in, in Britain. And when, when he became a believer, one of the things that kept him back from it was he loved mythology. And so many of his teachers taught that same idea that the Bible had basically co-opted mythology, right? And was just kind of recycling these myths. But when he realized through his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien, that these mythologies were actually true in a sense, not that every single detail was but one of the things that he says is, look, usually in a court of law, if you have two witnesses, that's very good evidence that it's the truth. So mythology and the history of the world, the history of these cultures provides so much evidence to us. And, and normally we would look and say, well, gosh, you know, you got one witness, you got two witnesses. We've got how many culture, every ancient culture we know of says that there was a flood. But because we're so brilliant today and, and you know, we, we follow the science, don't we? Um, we know that there was no way there was ever a flood. Um, and, and I'm not anti-science, but I, I'm just saying, you know, it's a, <laughs> anyway. So there's a difference between science and scientism, you know. Okay, so let's keep breaking down Genesis 6. Uh, there's that other word, the Nephilim, and I mentioned it, the giants. I'm not going to go in, in depth, but they're basically... They're basically a hybrid of humans and fallen beings who are the sons of God. So um, they are what became the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's good, but like, you know, yeah, like you think of Hercules or you think of different 
demigod type like uh, beings, that's what they would have been. But according to according to Jewish tradition and to, to other writings, not just Enoch, these Nephilim were wicked. They were bloodthirsty. They were, uh, you know, they, they just consumed everything. They were warlords. Um, they were dangerous. They, you know, took women as they pleased. So they brought in a level of, of brutality and evil, and there was nothing good in them. It's not like they were, they, they were like, like, a, I, I can't remember what the word is, but it's kind of like they were just consumed. Like there was just this consuming desire for wickedness. Okay. And they helped release that in the earth. So they're kind of, we already covered that demigods of Kalu. Okay. So also then we're going to notice that right when you finish reading about these men of renown, which we'll talk about that later, the mighty men and the men of renown, those Hebrew words actually really connect, but we're going to talk about it another week. But then you go to verse five right after this. And, and it's amazing how we can compartmentalize things, but this is one flow of thought. Okay. There were the, there was this whole crazy thing that happened. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. And this is when he decides to flood the earth. So if we if we just remove kind of our our western blinders of those first four verses and realize that they're in the in the biblical mind in the the mind of Moses and the mind of those that were reading the bible back in ancient days they saw a direct connection between those first four verses and the wickedness that was in the earth it's not to say that humanity wasn't sinful before this but the idea is that these watchers and the Nephilim accelerated wickedness and introduced ideas like Pandora's box that no one could undo. You know, who taught these, the, the, the astro, you know, astrology and all of these, you know, arts, black magic and, and, um, you know, all kinds of strange things like that, that, that have lived on to this day. And it's not like, I mean, if, if you know, like witchcraft is a real thing, it's not just, you know, some cutesy little Halloween thing, but this stuff is ancient. You know, you go back to the days of Moses and you had magicians who could produce a lot of the things that Moses could do. They could turn a staff into a, into a snake. They could, you know, they, they, they were able to keep up with Moses up to a point. Okay. So the black arts and magic had been around for a long time, but where did it all come from? I mean, you know, suppose we're supposed to believe that there was a bunch of cavemen and then all of a sudden overnight, you know, it was what, about 4,000 years before Christ overnight, all of a sudden, all of these amazing um, civilizations sprung up all at the same time, just happened to, right? It just, just, I don't know, for a long time, we we're just dumb cavemen. And then all of a sudden, you know, in Samaria and Egypt and, you know, along the Nile river in these different parts of the world, all of a sudden there were these sophisticated kingdoms that were doing, I mean, like incredible mathematical things, building aqueducts, building pyramids, build, and, and they were cavemen just before. Yeah, really? And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I just, just going off on this, but, but we, we, it's exciting to me to think about the power of, of history, the power of the Bible and how, um, yeah, I don't even know. I lost my train of thought. But the, ultimately, the point here is that the flood happened not just because of the sin of man, but because of the wickedness of the Nephilim. And if you follow Enoch, then you, you realize that 
when it was prophesied to the watchers, to the sons of God, that they're going to see their, their offspring die, they saw that happen in the flood. All of those Nephilim were wiped out. But it is important to note that in verse four, I'm not going to go into this right now. It does say that they were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So somehow there's some kind of vestige or remnant of the Nephilim that, that survives or comes back after the flood. Okay. So let me pause. And that's just kind of like a, a quick breakdown of, of, of that. But why would the sons of God have done this? Now, I'm just speculating. It's nice to ask questions. And, and I don't fully know. I mean, I think that Genesis 6 makes the point that they were really genuinely tempted uh, in, in the way that Adam and Eve were tempted. Um, we don't know as much about angels and other beings, but God did create them. And there's more that I could say, and maybe we'll talk about it another week. But, but still, like I think there was a genuine temptation. But at the same time, there's something going back to Genesis 3.15 with the seed. And remember, there was enmity and the enemy, the serpent, and anybody that would join him. Remember, he was going to have offspring, and that offspring was going to be at war with the woman and with her offspring. Well, the best way, like I said last time, would kind of do be like the Terminator, right? You know, go in and kill the woman before she can even have the kid, right? Like send the Terminator in the future and let's just annihilate the lady before, before we have to deal with John Connor, right? So, so you actually, that mentality I think was in, was in the enemy, not that they did time travel, but, but that the, the mentality was how can we destroy the seed? How can we destroy the woman? And if we can't kill her, because even based on Revelation 12, it appears that there's some kind of supernatural protection. Even when we read about uh, Noah, it says that his generation, that he was pure in his generations. So like the idea is that there was such corruption, even genetically all around him, but Noah was pure blood, direct descendant, firstborn going back to Seth. So he was carrying that, you know, he was carrying that mantle, if that makes sense. And so we've got this idea though, well, if we can't kill her and if we can't, we don't know who it is, we can't kill him for whatever reason, they couldn't kill Noah. We don't know, but I'm sure that the enemy would have loved to kill them. Um, then what we'll do is we'll pollute and corrupt humanity. It's kind of like um, in the days of Moses, or actually it was when Israel was going to go back into the promised land in the days of Joshua and Caleb, uh, before they went back in the promised land, Balaam was was a Balaam and Balak you know he wanted he he wanted to try to figure out how to destroy them so he tries to get Balaam to prophesy over Israel and speak curses but Balaam can't do it because even though he's a he's a sold out prophet he basically is like I can't I can't curse Israel like it's it's like a spiritual law I just can't do it and so finally he basically tells Balak look you want to get them what you need to do is tempt them get them to choose to agree and, and so you send in the women from the other cultures, bring in the gods, do that whole thing and let them choose to let corruption in and it will destroy them. Okay. So I think this is a similar thing. It's the same kind of deal as like, look, what we're going to do is we're going to pollute humanity. We're going to get in there, corrupt, genetically corrupt the seed and also introduce a level of sexual immorality and violence in the earth that. It just, it's, it's like alluring to humanity so that it's more likely that it perpetuates. If you think about it, 
if if they could just get in there corrupt the gen the genes the genetic bloodline and get to a point where that bloodline of noah or whoever it is would finally just agree and give in and you know and and procreate with somebody else that has that corrupted bloodline boom we got it jesus cannot whoever that whoever that redeemer is we've stopped it i mean i know it sounds crazy but i guess the enemy thought you know maybe we can you know if god said it this way then if we can stop it then we're going to do it so that's my theory i don't know but i think i think the enemy still um intends to he still intends to try to prevent the second coming of christ even though he knows it's inevitable um <laughs> i was thinking about that the other day i'm like man you know if we humans have that amazing you know like even that humanistic kind of idea you watch a documentary it's like the human spirit of man even though you know even though he knew that he could never make it he did it anyway it's just sort of that whole idea i'm like man if we had that and then you got this powerful being who's kind of like a human but like a superhuman because because obviously we were made in a way that we're kind of like frail we're dust right but god made these sons of god and man they, it, i mean i'm thinking like man maybe maybe lucifer is like a super optimist like he's like i don't care <laughs> against all odds i'm gonna do it you know so it's interesting too let me throw this out matthew chapter 24 is that chapter is about the last days and they're asking jesus before he goes to the cross hey what about the last days when you know when's all this going down and he shares with them a lot of crazy stuff and one of the things he says is concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father only for as were the days of noah so will be the coming of the son of man for as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when noah entered the ark okay so the way that i understand this and not everybody agrees with this um but so some do some don't the way that i understand this is jesus is saying not only will it be like the days of noah in the sense that people weren't expecting it because it is saying that like hey nobody knows the day or the hour kind of like when the flood came but noah knew the day or that you know he didn't know the exact moment but it's kind of like a pregnant woman it's like you know she doesn't know exactly the moment she's gonna have the baby but it's dead you know if you're like at nine nine months you're not like oh i don't know it might be in three years right it's like i don't know the day or the hour but i definitely know when that you know when it's gonna go down like women know that baby's coming right if they're in the, especially in that nine ninth month so it's sort of like that it's not like noah didn't know he just didn't know exactly when and his family didn't know and god would have revealed it to more people if they would have just listened i'm sure noah you know told many people and they thought he was crazy you know they thought he was nuts it never rained before this guy's a madman what is he doing so so i don't think it's just that though i think that jesus is saying that the last the days that when he returns are going to be like the days of Noah in that there will be a level of corruption and evil in the earth like the days of Noah. Okay. So um, it, it says even that they are they were marrying and giving in marriage. Now you could say, like, okay, yeah, everybody, but you know, in the days of Noah, it wasn't that normal. The idea that was set up in Genesis 6 is that there's marriages going on that are really unnatural. 
there's something going on that's actually changing the fundamental nature of humanity. There's there's something going on that's going beyond the boundaries and, and it's on par with a level that God considered the need for judgment. Like it was at a level like the flood was not just because God's mad. It's like there's a point in time where where judgment has to come in, where it's mercy, where it's right. And, and so like you see even later in Genesis 11, when they build the tower to heaven, they're kind of what they're doing is they're moving back. We'll talk about that another time, but they're moving back into a level of wickedness already so quickly after the flood and God divides their tongues because if he had not done that, it would have escalated to, an, to a, the extent that he would have had to judge the entire earth again. So in his mercy, he divides everything. He kind of like stops it, if that makes sense. Because he even says, look, you know, if we don't go down and do something, there, nothing's going to be impossible for them, which basically means then we're going to have to like annihilate again, you know? <laughs> and I promised I wasn't going to do that. But there is a day when there is a judgment coming. And he said he's not going to send a flood. But you know what he's sending? He's sending his son, Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's bringing righteousness and justice to the earth. And that's actually good news for those who have been oppressed, but it's actually really bad news for all those who are unrighteous and unjust. So uh, when Jesus returns, it's not a flood, a rain, but when he comes, he's dealing with his enemies. It says, you know, in Psalm 110, he rules in the midst of his enemies. I mean, he actually like uh, in Isaiah 63, he's like walking through with his garments splattered with blood. You read Revelation and it's like, I mean, he's crushing the heads of his enemies, literally killing kings of the earth. And we're going, that sounds terrible. But it, as in the days of Noah, these guys have gone off the rails at this point. I mean, they're so deluded that the nations literally go up to fight against Jesus as he's returning. What kind of delusion has to be happening when Jesus is coming back and they're like, there he is, let's get him, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, but that's, that's literally where this thing goes. So I know we're, 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 we're close to an hour, right, William? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm going to kind of wrap this up and, and I know I just threw a bunch of ideas out and probably didn't finish off some thoughts because that this is like a, it's a deep well. Like, I mean, I've, I've definitely spent more extensive time going through line by line and, and really studying this kind of on a theological level. I'm just trying to get the ideas out there um, to understand that there really is this battle over the seed and that there really was this crazy thing that happened and that, you know, in the, as in the days of Noah, there was sexual immorality that was off the rails. You know, there was, there was murder and bloodshed, but there was also something that was going on transgressing wise. And we live, you know, we live in a time. And so I'm just going to kind of connect it here. And some of you guys, you know, you might be like, well, Eric's kind of wacko, but I've always paid attention to stuff like this. But like, if you might not know who Ray Kurzweil is, you probably see his pianos. You see Kurzweil pianos. He's one of the most prolific inventors of of our time and he believes dearly and he's one of the most um he's it, it, he's always been a futurist makes predictions about technology and he's always been the most accurate guy out there i mean he's like the godfather for a sergey brin you know for the uh, the guys at google like he, he is like their their dude actually they ended up hiring him to help build their ai thing okay but he believes in the singularity and you might not know what that is but the singularity is basically the idea 
when we reach a point when Skynet goes live, I'm just kidding um, for those Terminator people. No, we reach a point when this, when technology actually gets to a point where it, it surpasses humanity. So it finally becomes conscious, artificial intelligence is just beyond, beyond the level of human beings. And it's actually able to operate on its own, but it's also the time when humanity merges with technology. So it's kind of the evolutionary idea that we're not going to be kind of terminator you know knocked out like ants by by technology which is sort of the dystopian idea and i'm telling you this you might think this is fringe but it's not y'all don't understand every well maybe you do all the stuff we're consuming all the stuff we i like technology we use google you got gmail you got the apps you got all this stuff all the guys that make all this stuff are super into this they are all about the future they're about the singularity they're about um transhumanism they invest massive amounts of money they're not just trying to build artificial intelligence they're they're actually going for eternal life what they're trying to do is produce at least the ability for humans to live for really long periods of time and they really believe it okay so whether that will actually happen or not i don't know but we get closer and closer and you might go oh, that's just kind of crazy but I'm telling you, big names, big money goes into all of this stuff. As a matter of fact, at the Vatican, right, I think right now, right about now, there's a big transhumanism conference going on, okay? The World Economic Forum, I don't know if you know who that is, they meet at DeVos every year, uh, World Economic Forum, many of our leaders, many of the global leaders have basically been, like are connected with it. Every major company, every major bank you can think of, including Pfizer for, you know, for that matter, they're not a bank, but all the big names all are part of the world economic forum and they are aggressive about what they call the great reset this is not a conspiracy you can go check their website uh, people like the news the media today will say oh there's just conspiracy theories so it reminds me of isaiah you know where he's like don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy klaus schwab talks about the fourth industrial revolution which is the time when we become transhuman it's also the time of like, well, it's also genetics, like CRISPR being able to genetically modify and encode human beings, like maybe even going in. And right now, ethically, we're, we're not allowed to. But guys, the, the momentum is pushing so that eventually, because you already, I, I read the books, I read these books, and I listen to the scientists that are saying this stuff. And their view is, look, how can you not? It's not ethical to not go in And basically, we could genetically engineer a child, we can remove every propensity for any disease. And then what they're going to do is make it sound like you're the immoral one for not doing that. And that's pretty much what they say. But the, the mainstream hasn't accepted it yet. But these guys all believe in it. Okay. And it's, it's major governments. It's not a conspiracy. This book, Age of Surveillance Capitalism, blow your mind if you ever read, um, or if you ever watched the Social Dilemma on Netflix. She's on there. She's from Harvard. Brilliant. I mean, right now, Google and all of these companies, Facebook, another one, harvesting every piece of data from us. And it's not about privacy. What it is, is they're building an intelligence that like this book right here, Homo Deus, he talks about how um, God doesn't exist, but he will, because we're basically creating God. So uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, most of these guys, they'll say, we're basically, we're going to become gods. But not only that, 
the artificial intelligence mind that's being created is going to be kind of it almost reminds me of Ralph Waldo Emerson, where it's like this oversoul, you know, and it will be this incredible because we already have these algorithms now that are so brilliant. They predict your behavior. I don't know if you you realize, but but that's where Google that I mean, they are they're in the place where they predict behavior. They've been there for a long time, and that's how they make so much money from harvesting all of our information. They can predict so much about you. So can Facebook more, probably more than more than you can about yourself. And so, and it's all in the algorithms that they have. But eventually, these algorithms will eventually come together and you know become sentient on some level. Okay, um, y'all might think I'm crazy, but. According to Ray Kurzweil, it's not that far away. Some will say, you know, maybe, you know, it might be a little ways. But before then, even by 2030, you're probably going to see at least really wealthy people be able to at least upgrade their bodies so that they can upgrade parts of their bodies. Okay. Why am I talking about this? It kind of sounds crazy, but I'm talking about it because it's basically a pattern. It's a rhyme. It rhymes with Genesis 6. What we're seeing is the beginnings of playing with the, the idea of what is it to even be human. Homo Deus is about how we're basically going to transcend our humanity. His first book was Homo Sapiens. Now it's Homo Deus. That means God. So we're going to become gods, right? And we will be freed like this guy talks about. Basically, he talks about how, um, you know, the, for a long time in the Vedas and, and in Hinduism, there was the idea of an astral plane and the 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 unseen kind of realm and and it's like basically the technology realm is that kind of like if you saw recently mark zuckerberg talking about the 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 multiverse okay the multiverse is just part of that idea but these guys are gnostics that this goes back to the nephilim the idea is you know if you read homo deus it's our it's our it's our actually our physical bodies and the chemistry in our bodies that's holding us back so we still have sort of this primal part of us, but we have this mind, we have this other part. And so if we can get to a point where we're like freed from this broken body. Some want to have an upgraded body. Others imagine we can just be in cyberspace or maybe we can do both. You know, you can be in cyberspace and then, and then you can also take on a body or whatever. But the point is it's a gnosticism, which is, which means it's the idea of dualism where there's there's the, the natural world, but the natural world is evil. It was created by an evil God and it's bad. You know, everything physical is bad. And the Greeks had this idea and this idea crept into the early church and it's kind of gets in the church even now. It's kind of the idea like, but Christianity sees the body as a good thing. It sees sex as a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing within the boundaries of marriage. So, so we've been brainwashed to think that Christianity is anti-matter, but it's not. That's Gnosticism. And so the idea, even going back to like, you know, Plato, Aristotle is like the, the, the more pure place will be out of your body, like in it, where the good God created, I mean, I'm just kind of generalizing good God created the immaterial. And so what they're in a sense doing is perpetuating or, or pushing this idea that we just got to get free from this, this frail body, right? And we're going to go into the spiritual world. It's interesting because that's the same lie that the that the you know that was being offered to adam and eve or being offered uh i'm sorry in genesis 6 when when the the sons of god came they were basically offering knowledge right it's what was offered to adam and eve right you'll become gods 
why are we still so tempted to become gods? Why is that? I mean, you know, we can look and we can laugh and say, ha, ah, there's no way, you know, all that mythology stuff, that's ridiculous. But why are we doing it? Why, why now? Now it's like we actually create science fiction. Well, you watch the Avengers. We love the Avengers, but most of them are transhumans. Most of them are, you know, Thor, maybe he's from another planet. Most of them are transhuman, right? They're, they're some kind of modified human being. And it's not magic, it's science, right? And, you know, it might just be a movie, but at the same time, is it really just a movie? <laughs> you know, um, we're, we're at this place where we're creating these, and that's even the idea of the multiverse and the idea that, that there is no one truth or the idea that, so we're moving back into a pagan sort of mentality that is embracing what used to be, but interestingly, it's all real, it's technology. Am I saying that there's actually demigods involved in all of this? I don't know. I do know that there are spiritual forces that love this stuff. Okay. I like technology, but there's a spiritual force behind it. And Mark Zuckerberg, if he's not a cyborg already, I don't know. Cause sometimes he looks kind of funky to me, you know, like his eyes and all, but, it, but it, I'm just kidding. Um, but it like, he probably thinks he's really doing something good, but he does He's just a little puppet. He's just a little puppet. And the reality is the enemy is trying to get in to pervert humanity. And to actually cause us to be something other than what we are. And I think that we're, you know, oh, here's a little, this is a graph. This is the singularity. It's kind of like, here's human intellect. And there's a point where with intelligence and machines, it just goes exponential. And we just hit this point where we just can't, we can't keep up. And so the best thing to do is just merge with it, you know? But the idea is like, are we going to become the gods, you know, or, or are we going to like serve this crazy god and will that god is it just an algorithm i mean i'm thinking about like think about tony stark and and the age of ultron right he creates ultron as i think i put a picture of it here it is he's creating ultron so here's the bad thing the ultron kind of turns into kind of like the terminator right but he also he carries the characteristics of tony stark in a really negative way right and that's the thing these guys don't get is that even even if there's not a spiritual force like right now facebook makes algorithms twitter jack dorsey these guys some drive me crazy and they create these algorithms and they think that these algorithms are free right they're like no it's just an algorithm it's like yeah but the algorithm carries a bias and your bias regardless of anybody's political opinion is strongly leaning towards the left. Okay. And so the people who created these algorithms, now it's like they created these gods in their image. So it's kind of like Tony Stark creating Ultron. It's in his image. Whatever we're making right now is not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It's like the Lord of the Rings. It's so alluring. Oh my goodness. We could do such good with this but it actually is going to destroy you and it's going to destroy humanity. I mean, these are the same stories playing over and over, but we're in the middle of it right now. This is not about Instagram or Twitter or whatever. They're building something that, you know, will be tempting for people. It will be tempting not just to live in the multiverse, but the idea that, you know, maybe if somebody dangles the carrot in front of you enough, Hey, if you just stay healthy long enough, you might be able to at least extend your life. You know, that's what Ray Kurzweil thinks, like, at least we can extend my life enough and then more and then keep upgrading and eventually reach immortality. Okay. How is that? Like, here we are, we're back in the garden, guys, where we want eternal life. We want to restore 
creation. That's what they say. The internet of things. We're going to actually, if you listen to Jason Silva, he's like the prophet of this stuff. And he, he has a YouTube thing called Shots of Awe. And you can listen to him. He's like, in a way, he's a prophet for uh, transhumanism and all this stuff. He's brilliant and crazy and, and, uh, and it's kind of scary. So one thing is like, he, he'll quote these guys, these futurists, and it's like, we're going to impregnate the universe with consciousness. And that's the idea of the internet of things is that, that eventually we will literally be able to even take matter and start connecting everything. I mean, the visions these guys have are unbelievable. If you read, uh, so I got to stop because I could go on about it. 